0: welcome to episode 37 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast it's now August and you all know what that means and if you don't well you're on your own for those of you who have received the manganese ion biofilter, please do plug them in now. Check they're properly secured within the germanium chronotron housing. And if you will, set your tantulum bracket to zero. Now before I came online today, I did notice a slight variance in the ceramic fragmenter, but the readings were stable, so I let it go. But if you do notice symptoms... Make sure you ask your doctor if you need degaussing. I did, and to be honest, I haven't felt better since I inadvertently trapped my elbow in the microwave. My sponsor today is CEI's Free the Economy podcast. Health, wealth, and happiness, three goals that are essential to our lives. But attaining them is often impeded by heavy-handed government controls. That's why we must free the economy. Free the Economy is a weekly podcast produced by the Competitive Enterprise Institute that documents the opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment in a world with less government control. How can smart urbanism improve our lives? Where is economic freedom under attack? How can we unleash the potential of small business owners and innovators? Each week, Richard Morrison offers news you can use and fascinating conversations with experts in their field to answer these questions and more. I think we can all agree, freedom is contagious, so check out Free the Economy wherever you listen to your podcasts, or visit cei.org forward slash Free the Economy. My guest today is the historian Andrew Roberts, who's actually now Baron Roberts of Belgravia, which is a great title. And in keeping with my nobility only policy on this podcast, uh, Andrew is the author of a whole host of books including biographies of Churchill and Napoleon and George the 3rd. Andrew Roberts, welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Charlie. <laughs>
0: All right, so I want to start by talking about indispensable men, or dispensable men, if that's the case, and about the extent to which the Second World War was a story about different men who, if they had been replaced by others, or if they'd had different personal characteristics or talents, could have led to dramatically different outcomes. The three major figures at the outset of World War II, you have Churchill, Hitler, and Stalin. How much did that affect the result? Was Churchill an indispensable man? Were the Allies lucky that Hitler was in charge instead of someone else? Did Stalin set the Allies back when he joined? Or is this overstated as a set of factors? I know that's a big question, but I I like it as a starting point to talk about these giants of that conflict.
1: It's a huge question, as you say, but um, I think the personalities, the characters of each of them were Absolutely central to the outcome of the war. I think that Adolf Hitler was pretty much alone in any of the decision, likely decision makers of the German side in the Second World War to come up with the idea of invading Russia and then declaring war against an uninvadable country like America. With Stalin, you see a very interesting way from moving after Operation Barbarossa, after June 1941, where he loses three and a half million men in the first six weeks, from a dictatorial way of running the war to a much more collaborative way where he brings his marshals who have far greater strategic concepts than him, marshals like uh, Konev and Rokosovsky and Zhukov and others, to um, give them real power on the battlefield, which is something that a nat- natural totalitarian like him doesn't naturally do, but has to under the circumstances. And then you see Winston Churchill, who is somebody who has made mistake after mistake in his career, The worst one, of course, strategically being Gallipoli in which 147,000 Allied soldiers were killed or wounded and he reins back his natural tendency to want to dominate strategy and works very closely with the chiefs of staff to the point that he never overrules them at all in the second world war but you still need to have him because of the political side as well uh, he does come up with the with the strategy but also he's the person that gives the British, the leadership to fight on in 1940 and early 1941, which um, other leaders might not have been able to have done. So in key moments in the Second World War, it absolutely is down to the personalities, the characters, the leadership of each of these three people. And I think if you'd had different people, you could very well have had different outcomes.
0: All right, let's talk about Churchill then. Why is the book called Walking with destiny. What was Churchill's destiny?
1: It's called that because it's a quotation from the last paragraph of the first of the volumes of uh, Churchill's war memoirs, in which he recalled the day on which he became prime minister on the 10th of May, 1940. And he said that, uh, I felt as if I were walking with destiny, that all my past life had been a preparation, but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. And what I was trying to do in the book was to look at precisely that, how his past life had been a preparation for what he, he did in May 1940 and was to do for the rest of his life. Because there are so many aspects of the earlier parts of his life that are seen in the later decisions that he took. And so I'm not somebody who believes in, in destiny, that there's some kind of a providence, some kind of a natural fate that that we are drawn ineluctably towards. But he did believe that there was a a sort of star that um, that guided him. He had come, in particular, so close to death on so many occasions in his life that he did believe that he was being kept back for some special purpose, which was to save, save Britain, save the empire, save Western civilization, and so on. Do,
0: do we know by what mechanism he thought that worked? Was he religious? Did he, he wasn't just religious. Think-
1: no. no, no, no. He wasn't religious at all. Um, uh, he ex- accepted the existence of an Almighty, but the sole duty of the Almighty seems to have been to take care of Winston Churchill. <laughs> he wasn't. Um, he didn't believe that Jesus Christ was uh, was the saviour. Although he did believe that he was a extraordinarily wise rabbi and who helped give the morals for for Judeo Christian uh, world, which he thought were the best. Things he he had lots of uh, nice things to say about the Sermon on the Mount and so on, but he was not a Christian, except in a very formalized one that you had to be, of course, as a politician of that era.
0: Christopher Hitchens praises Churchill for separating himself in the 1930s from much of the Conservative Party and even some, although not all, on the left. In seeing Hitler as a threat per se rather than solely within the British context and solely within the geopolitics of the time. In other words, Hitchens says that Churchill understood that Hitler was what we now perceive Hitler to be. How? How did he see... The Nazis for what they were at a time when a lot of people either couldn't or because of the First World War didn't want to.
1: I didn't know that Christopher was so uh, kind about uh, Churchill. I once, I once did a critique of um, an article he wrote, I think, in The Atlantic and pointed out 40 either factual or in some way uh, philosophical uh, <laughs> things that Chris Christopher Hitchens got wrong uh, about Winston Churchill. But I'm very pleased to hear from you that he got that uh, that bit right. The answer is three things. He was a Philo semite He liked Jews. He'd grown up with Jews. His father had liked Jews. He'd been on holiday with them. He recognized, as I mentioned earlier, the importance of Judeo-Christian ethics. And uh, therefore, he had an early warning system, essentially, with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. He could see the kind of person that was in a way that wasn't vouchsafed to a lot of of British politicians of the day, um, many of whom were anti-Semitic. That's the first thing. The second uh, is that he was an historian. One of the reasons that I'm proud to be an historian was that Churchill was one. He had this fantastic capacity to see British history as a continuum. So he looked back to Philip II, the threats essentially posed by Philip II of Spain at the time of the Spanish Armada, then to Louis XIV in the Wars of Spanish Succession, which, of course, his own great ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, was essential in in defeating. Then he went on to Napoleon, who he admired but recognized was a serious threat to European hegemony. Then to the Kaiser. And of course, he himself had fought in the First World War in the trenches. And so he saw Hitler in that long continuum as the as the latest serious, dangerous threat, which again, an awful lot of the appeasers couldn't see that in the mid 30s. And then finally, you have the fact that he was totally different from most of the other British prime ministers of the uh, certainly of the 1930s men like Stanley Baldwin Neville Chamberlain Ramsay MacDonald in that he had come up close and personal to fanaticism in his life on the northwest frontier in the uh, river war in the Sudan and he recognized fanaticism and recognized it in the nazis and recognize that uh, they couldn't really ultimately be appeased. So you have all those three things together, and you you add all the various other aspects of, um, of Churchill, and you have what Hitchens, I'm pleased to say, recognizes as a very extraordinary figure.
0: In the blood, toil, tears, and sweat speech, he describes the Nazis as a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. Do you have any impression of whether that was necessary rhetoric designed to alert the British public to the danger and sustain their confidence? Or did he actually see it as we might now?
1: He recognised the vital importance of morale at that uh, period. You have the Blitz, of course, and the Battle of Britain. You have the defeat at Dunkirk. You have these Absolutely existential moments for for Great Britain. And unless you're able but what he wanted to do was to argue that they didn't just have to fight and survive, but they had to fight and conquer. They had to wipe out, to to extirpate Nazism. And in order to do that, you had to appeal to the moral and overwhelmingly, of course, in those days Christian principles of the um, British Public and the wider public, of course, in America as well, which he was always had an eye to trying to um, to persuade. This language, which seems rather sort of purple passage uh, to to us, although it, of course, is actually. Um, Justified is also part and part of the kind of language that he had always used all his life. He wasn't somebody who underestimated things or tried to play things down, and that, in a sense, was one of the great criticisms of him in 1940. Was that oh, this is just Winston who's overreacting in the same way as he did in the First World War and in the Boer War, and you know, in all his speeches, and he's just, uh, he's just overacting, essentially. But in 1940, with the threat posed by Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, he clearly wasn't.
0: Do you think Britain, absent Winston Churchill, would have made peace with Nazi Germany or tried to?
1: They came close in the five meetings, sorry, the eight meetings over five days in late, 19, in late May 1940. The War Cabinet had a series of discussions in which they talked about opening peace negotiations via Mussolini um, with Adolf Hitler. Lord Halifax was in favour of it, but the two Labour members were not. And Neville Chamberlain wavered, but ultimately came down on Churchill's side, as did the two Labour members. So it's a very open question. If Halifax had become Prime Minister on the 9th um, of May or the 10th of May 1940, he would have only had two weeks, essentially, to have established his dominance over the government in the same way that Churchill had established his by that period. So it's an open question, frankly.
0: This is, of course, a big counterfactual, but do you have any insight into what might have happened if the British had made a peace with Nazi Germany?
1: Oh, it would have been absolutely catastrophic for us. Instead of Hitler attacking Russia in the June of 1941, once he had already been forced in the April of 1941 to invade Yugoslavia and subsequently, in May, Greece. He'd have had a completely free hand to his west. Um, He'd have been able to have used the entirety of the Luftwaffe. But as it was, he had to keep back at least 30% of it to protect against the bombing that uh, campaign that we had unleashed on him after August 1940. He'd have been able to have concentrated the entirety of the Wehrmacht. He wouldn't have had to have protected his uh, western flank at all. And he also wouldn't have had to have gone, wasted essentially six weeks going down into Greece and Yugoslavia. So and when one considers quite how close he got to Moscow, only 30 miles or so, uh, Stalin had his private... Uh, train made ready on the 19th of October 1941 to take him back beyond the Urals, if he'd taken Moscow, which was, of course, was a vital nodal point and a strategic one and a um, moral one, of course, as well for the Soviet Union, who's to say? And if if, uh, Hitler had won in the East, then it would have been curtains for us by, by the late 1940s.
0: So one of the things I enjoyed the most in your book on Churchill is your analysis of his speeches. And this is one of the things we love about Winston Churchill. It's one of the things for which he's the most famous. Where did he get that literary brilliance? Where did he get his eloquence? Did he... (laughs) Did, did he start it in the hospital? <laughs> did um, he develop it?
1: <laughs> no, he... Um, it's a good question. He actually wrote an article when he was, uh, I think, 23 years old about how to, um, how to give public speeches and how to... Uh, um, it, it's called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric. It's all about rhetoric and oratory. And the point, the extraordinary thing is that at that stage of him writing this brilliant article, when you read it today, you think, oh, yes, that's exactly how to make a Churchillian speech. He, at that stage, had never given a public speech in his life. Usually, people get their practice at something and then develop a theory. He started with the theory and then turned it into his practice. And boy, did he practice, you know, long before 1940. He had already been giving speeches, you know, for, uh, for, for four decades. He travelled all the way around the country, thousands of miles by train, every year delivering speeches. So he had this sense of timing. He practised sometimes for as many hours as there were minutes in the speech. And so he had this uh, idea that although he liked to make it sound as though it was coming off the cuff, it certainly wasn't. And then he had what's called psalm form, these little six by four cards that he, uh, sometimes bigger, that he would have the key parts of each sentence written down on. And uh, you put all those together, it was incredibly hard work. But uh, of course, it made him, in my view, the greatest orator of the 20th century.
0: So where did he get the theory that's the practice the, part yeah
1: he i mean the actual the actual vocabulary largely seems to come from what's called a phonographic memory uh, it's like a photographic memory but it's for words and um he could recite Endless amounts of Shakespeare and many of the great uh, poets. He had a um, profound reading of Macaulay and Gibbon and and the other people whose uh, language you can see later in his uh, work. Kipling was a uh, important. Influence on him as well, and so one of the great um, fun things about writing about Winston Churchill is to look at where these phrases came from. There's a, a historian called Richard Langworth who has written a book called Churchill in His Own Words, which does this. It, it looks at blood, toil, tears, and sweat, for example, and goes back to the 16th century, 17th century, and so on, and various various texts that. Churchill probably read, or certainly read in many cases, where these phrases do um, uh, crop up. And then, of course, once he grabbed a phrase, once he had one that he loved, let us go forward together is a very good example. He would use it again and again and again.
0: Are you worried that he's going to be cancelled? Even his own college in Cambridge hosted a symposium recently at which he was Roundly criticized and criticized in terms which if indulged can't be avoided. If he was indeed a racist imperialist, if he's a stain on the nation, then those who run around doing the cancelling are going to try to get rid of him, aren't they?
1: Yes, yes. That's already um started the uh in the Black Lives Matter demonstration, his his statue was daubed uh, with the word racist. As you say, Churchill College Cambridge held a symposium in which he was accused of being a war criminal and a white supremacist and so on the last two books about Churchill have um, been incredibly vicious and, uh, and really sort of hateful towards him. I saw in last, last month's History Today magazine, some professor at the University of Kent said he's the most overrated figure of the 20th century. <laughs> the reason I think though that this won't actually wash ultimately with the British public. It certainly doesn't seem to have so far. He's still voted as the uh, one of the most, if not the most, beloved figures of, uh, of British history. The reason, therefore, that people are able to um, take all this and essentially ignore it is that they um, recognize that you have to see everything to do with the past in its historic context. And you've also got to look at it in the round. You've got to see what Winston Churchill actually did in order to fight to defend and protect non-white people. The white supremacist wants bad things to happen to non-white people. Well, Churchill actually fought at, uh, in the Northwest Frontier, fought in the to abolish slavery, for example, in the Sudan. He was a uh, a uh, man who was absolutely driven by the sense of noblesse oblige and uh, and chivalry towards the non-white inhabitants of the British Empire, and that comes through so often in so many ways throughout the sixty years of his public life that I think people do recognise that this is that the attacks on him are about modern day ideology, essentially ultra woke ideology, and not really anything terribly much to do with Winston Churchill.
0: I mean, for what you are saying. Churchill sounds relatively progressive for his era.
1: Hugely progressive, he really was. But but race, unfortunately, was not seen in a progressive way by a lot of people at the time that Charles Darwin was still alive, for example, by when, when Churchill was born. People saw race as a as a hierarchy with the whites at the top of it. And however much we know that to be obscene uh, today and absurd, it was considered a scientific fact in those days. And I think people, you know, people recognize that. People don't ask why wasn't Oliver Cromwell in favor of a nationalized health service kind of thing. You know, we're all able to, anybody who's got any intelligence is able to recognize that the past genuinely is a, a different country where people do different things.
0: All right, let's talk about Napoleon. So I'm with you on Churchill. I love Churchill. I got your book the day it came out. I have always regarded, and I suppose been taught to regard, Napoleon as a tyrant, a tyrant whom the British had to repel in the late 18th century and then in the early 19th century, a tyrant whose eventual defeat was necessary to the Pax Britannica, But you don't see him in that way. And I wonder if you can explain for my audience why Napoleon was a great man, why he wasn't a tyrant or a proto-Hitler or someone who should be shunned.
1: Yes. Shall I first of all tell you why you think that? Yes. (laughs) Um... And that is because you were taught that by people who, I know you're a lot younger than me, but nonetheless, people who either remember the Second World War or who um, whose feelings about uh, the world were profoundly affected by the Second World War. Is that right? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and people in the Second World War did believe that Napoleon was a proto-Hitler figure, that he was just exactly the same kind of man. Could not be further from the truth. He was, as Churchill said, somebody, Napoleon was, somebody who unleashed a a level of equality that hadn't been seen before. After the French Revolution, you weren't judged on uh, who your grandfather was. You were judged according to your own abilities. This meritocratic sense that swept through Europe with the French Revolution was something that Napoleon did did manage to um, to advance. When one looks at the 26 of his marshals, 13 of them are the sons of barrel coopers and innkeepers and um, personal servants and so on, people who, for the first time, as I say, in a 1,000 years of French history, are not uh, connected to uh, who their grandfathers and, and great-grandfathers were, and that's a wonderful thing. So is the way in which you were allowed to profess any religion you liked. When the, his troops entered towns in uh, in Italy, they freed the Jews from the ghettos. They uh, were completely different from Adolf Hitler, needless to say. He was somebody who had a sort of modernizing influence of the best kind in France. He invented various... Things like the uh, the Banque de France, which finally dealt with inflation, like the Legend d'honneur, which went to people because of merit and so on and um and so many other infrastructure projects and aspects of, of French life that was desperately needed after the Ancien Regime to modernize that, uh, that country, which he then extended to much of France. The Napoleonic Code was still in operation in the Rhineland, for example, in 1900. So the idea of mixing him up with this, with this uh, squalid caucus boss, as you mentioned, the, that quotation you gave afterwards, is, um, is ludicrous as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, that explains that he wasn't all bad perhaps that he wasn't a tyrant certainly that he wasn't pro to Hitler but I mean he did threaten britain to- yes no, I,
1: no no I'm the f- right with you on the idea of how important it was that he be repelled and I'm and I I'm thrilled that he lost the battle of waterloo um absolutely no no but th- I think that that might be because I'm an englishman Rather than because I'm looking at this, if I were a Martian, I wouldn't necessarily think that the uh, True. Uh, that that this was the um, this was the case. It's um it's quite right that uh, we should um, have a PAX Britannica, and yes, he did, of course, threaten it. As you know, but
0: the reason I wonder about him still is the English spent the 1790s worried about Napoleon. You get all this literature that pops up that is. Obsessed with invasion, we then fight him at Trafalgar, and we fight him at Waterloo. The French weren't worried were they that the British were going to invade their country, so i mean the the imperialism or the expansionism is a problem, no.
1: No, because actually in the 1790s, and you've got to remember that Napoleon didn't come into power until until the last month of the 1790s. Actually, what the French are worried about is that the British are going to aid the French royalists in southwest France. They're going to join up with the Prussians and the Austrians who... Uh, invade France in the uh, mid 1790s, and that actually the British are an active, largely through money and finance, uh, supporting the the French and the the Austrians and the Prussians and others. Later, the Russians are out to destroy the French Revolution, and so that is in a sense an imperialistic um, concept. You know, this is a clash of of empires. But when you look at all of the wars of Napoleon, i.e. from the point that he becomes first consul in 1800 through to his defeat at Waterloo. There are seven what are called wars of the coalition. Now, five of those seven are actually launched by the coalition against Napoleon. Only two, the Peninsular Campaign and the Russian Campaign, both of which, of course, he lost, were launched by him.
0: Should I, as a Brit, until recently, who was brought up with great affection for the Glorious Revolution, and now as an American who has great affection for the American Revolution, be bothered by the fact that he was an emperor, that he was a
1: dictator? No, I don't think you should. I'm not somebody who thinks that there's a single political view that should be embraced by the whole of humanity. I think it's perfectly possible for us to admire the limited constitutional government that we've had as a result of the Glorious Revolution, to admire the American system after 1783, uh, but also to admire the very different European context of the Napoleonic Code, say, which is very different from our common law, of course, which uh, requires Napoleon to, to impose it and to extend it. There's, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all constitutional arrangement for um, everybody in the world.
0: All right. Well, on that, that's a good segue to George III. George III is cast here in the United States. As a tyrant, he's described as such in the Declaration of Independence. After late 1775, certainly after independence has been declared, the nice letters from the colonists dry up. You know, 1774, 1775. The missives that are sent back to England are friendly and pleading, but then they change, and now George the Third is regularly described as a tyrant, there are people who will say, and I think there's something to it, well, that's nonsense. And in fact, that the British had a point with their complaints about the colonists, that the colonists wanted protection, they didn't want to pay for it. They were quite happy to allow the British Empire to fight the French and Indian Wars, but then they became irritated when the bill was sent over. How should an American see george the third does he deserve the term tyrant was he any different than his predecessors or was this a domestic fight really over parliamentary representation and nothing more
1: he certainly doesn't deserve the word um, tyrant. You get that in the declaration, needless to say, and also Tom Paine's Common Sense, this pamphlet, the largest selling pamphlet of the 18th century, which in the January of 1776 really does have the effect of destroying George III's reputation in uh, in Britain, but uh, in, and in the Declaration, those first three paragraphs um, that that third first third essentially of the Declaration, which is the most beautifully written document. You know, it, it's it's uh, it's Shakespearean and it gives us concepts that are you know some of the greatest concepts in in human history, but. The second two thirds of it is is a ridiculous long 28 um, clause recitation of things that George III is supposed to have done. Only two of the 28 of which hold any kind of intellectual water at all. The 17th, which is about taxation, and the 22nd, which is about lawmaking and legislative power. And those in and of themselves do justify the American Revolution. Of course, and the 1770s was the right time for America to become independent. However, the other 26 are a a series of ex post facto rationalizations, special pleadings, as you say. You know, lots of kings and queens from Elizabeth I onwards had the powers of George III. He didn't try to arrogate new ones, and they are a a sort of catalogue, a lawyer's list of trying to fit as many things in as possible. And some of them are completely absurd. He's accused in one of them for taking Americans across the sea for for trial, when absolutely not one American was taken across any sea for any trial in the whole of George III's reign. So, you know, you have to see it as a propaganda document brought out in a war to try to make the enemy leader unpopular and, and therefore perfectly understandable. But the idea of it being uh, the second two-thirds of it at least, having any real historical validity, I think is um, is quite wrong.
0: Leave aside, if it's possible to do so, the loss of the North American colonies, except Canada. Was George III a good king?
1: Yes, he was a, he was a wonderful king. The, the catastrophe of the loss of the American colonies, of course, is pretty much the only thing that anyone knows about him, apart from the fact that he went mad. However... When one looks at the other things that he did in his reign, it was a very long reign. Uh, he he had fifty years. He had sixty years on the throne. Fifty years of which he was uh, he was sane, and this was the time that he founded the Royal Academy, was the driving force behind uh, the Georgian architectural movement. He, was, uh, he brought Mozart to London, was a great uh, patron of music and the arts. He, was, uh, he gave the money for William Herschel to discover the planet Uranus, which was originally named after him uh, through the uh, biggest telescope in the world he was a uh, man who gave 80000 of his own books to the british library when one goes to the british library that central th- feature there the six rows of six floors of books are all his he was a extraordinary. He was on the cutting edge of the Enlightenment in so many other areas as well. So I think one um, just to just to know that he was the Mad King who lost the colonies doesn't begin to touch the edge of what of what George III genuinely was all about.
0: Now, I want to pick up a couple of loose ends. You said the 1770s was the right time for the colonies to declare their independence
1: why well because because by then they had a population of two and a half million they had a burgeoning economy about eight percent year-on-year growth they had as many bookshops in philadelphia as in any other city of the empire apart from london you know they were they were ready for it um it was the right time. But of course, in order for it to happen, there had to be a war because in those days, until I think 1905, when Norway and Sweden split, there is no moment in history where uh, people who are part of one empire leave it to form another in completely peaceful terms.
0: The other, Lucien is you described the United States as uninvadable. What do you mean by
1: that? Well, first of all, with regard to, I I mentioned it with regard to Adolf Hitler declaring war in December 1941. There was simply no way that the Germans could invade and subjugate a a country as big and uh, as populous as the United States was at the time. But also, it, you know, this was a problem for George III as well, because with 1,500 miles north to south of the 13 colonies, and uh, admittedly they, the 13 colonies didn't go far, very far inland up until that point, which was actually part of the reason that the war broke out, was because of the proclamation of 1763 kept the colonies tethered to the, the seaboard. It was very difficult for an army that never amounted to more than about 35,000 men to subjugate the um the united states it was um it was just a militarily tremendously difficult war to fight for the for the british from uh, 1775 onwards
0: so in recent months there's been a renewed debate over the british empire with some people finally piling in and saying you know there were some good parts of it. What is your view on balance? I know you haven't written a book about the British Empire, but when you look at it in the history of empires, and when you think about how it relates to the modern world,
1: what is your takeaway? Well, actually, funny enough, I've written a National Review article about it uh, just um, just a, a couple of um, issues ago. It strikes me that the essentially the Marxist slash ultra-woke critique of the empire is falling apart now. I haven't written a book about it, but uh, Nigel Bigger has written one called Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, which is properly objective about the the positive and negative sides. Now, nobody denies for a moment that there were terrible negative sides, the colonial... Slavery uprising in Jamaica and how it was put down, the Amritsar massacre of 1919 and so on, you know. But in a sense, the very fact that we do remember uh, and know the key moments when the British Empire went horribly wrong shows how over the 500 years of the British Empire, which covered uh, a quarter or so of the world's land surface, that for the vast majority of time in the vast majority of places, things were going right. And when it came to the advancement and development of uh, of the places that were controlled by Britain, especially after 1857, when the uh, rapacious East India Company came to an end and the government of the empire was taken on by uh, Westminster, it was an entirely different animal. Frankly. And that's something I think that historians are picking up on now that we are are seeing in um, lots of really impressive research papers and books by a large number of people, including many Indian academics and people whose heritage is not British. And that I think is something that really is uh, a very interesting and important development.
0: I want to finish by asking you about your process as a writer, as I said at the beginning, you've written about Churchill, you've written about Napoleon, you've written about George III, and then other figures within books, for example, about the Second World War. First off, how do you decide what you're going to write about next? What was it that made you say, I want to write a book about Napoleon, for example? And second, once you've made that decision... What comes next? Do you only want to work if there is, say, new information or source material available? Do you want to work because you've decided someone is wrong and you want to correct the record? And how long does it take once you've set off on the journey?
1: Uh, Well, there are three questions there, and I'm going to take them in reverse order, if that's okay. (laughs) The first is, um, the, the book can sometimes, my Napoleon book took six years. I visited 53 of Napoleon's 60 battlefields uh, in 16 countries. So all in all, that um, can take a long time. My biography of Lord Salisbury also took six years. Churchill took four, but I'd already written four books with him in the title or the subtitle. So I I thought I knew a bit about him, but it can take a very long time. And so you don't just do it because you think that somebody has has had a bad rap in the in his last uh his or her last uh book you um you have to appreciate that you're going to contribute quite a significant proportion i'm 60 year, years old now you know a, a six year book will be quite a significant proportion of the time that i've got left on the planet so it's not something that you um you go into lightly But having said that, I actually haven't been the key figure when it comes to deciding what I was going to Hmm. write about. Anyway, in my life, I've, my, um, Agent has come up with some ideas. It was my publisher who came up with both Churchill and Napoleon. My ex-wife uh, on one rather nerve-wracking occasion came up with one. Uh, my present wife has. I am just no good at choosing what I should write about. I've realized this. So, um, so yeah, it is it is a difficult one. Uh, I'm not put off by the fact that lots of other people have written about the same subject um, as I want to. Uh, Churchill has uh, 1,009 biographies written about him. Wow. Mine was the 1,010th. Napoleon has as many books written about him where, where Napoleon is in the title as there have been days since his death in 1821. So, you know, don't be put off is what I'm saying if it's a well-trodden... You might actually be more assured of sales because there are people who will buy every single new book of, of on, on Churchill or Napoleon, you know. But equally, of course, you don't want to just mimic whatever the last person said. And so you must uh, differentiate yourself in some way. But most important must be that you will feel happy about spending four or five or six years in someone's company pretty much day in, day out.
0: Do you miss them when it's over? Rick Brookhiser told me that when he finished his book on John Marshall, he almost felt separation anxiety for a while, because he was so deeply enmeshed in the man's world and life.
1: Yes, I think with Churchill, I've kept it going because I'm a a trustee of the International Churchill Society, so I have lots of meetings about him. When some moron says something ridiculous and untrue about Churchill, I write articles to, to... Defend him. He's ever present. I, I take people around the cabinet war rooms uh, now called the Churchill War Rooms, for example, and and so that. Means that uh, separation anxiety is kept at a good distance. With Napoleon, again, I I, uh, take people to the battlefield of Waterloo, and I, whenever I go to Paris, there are various Napoleonic places that I like to uh, to visit, and I read about about Napoleon when um, when books come out about him. So I think I'm inured as far as those two are concerned to uh, to this concept of separation. I've never heard it before. It's rather rather fine idea of separation anxiety. your long dead subjects
0: all right well thank you so much andrew roberts for coming on the podcast
1: i really enjoyed it charlie thank you very much
0: and that's all we've got time for this week before i go i would highly recommend andrew roberts's podcast secrets of statecraft with andrew roberts and that being done All that remains to do is to thank my guest, Andrew Roberts, to thank you for listening, to adjust the auto-sequencers beneath the propeller set, and to say see you next week.